2 Corinthians chapter 10 in the message. And now a personal but most urgent matter. I write in the gentle but firm spirit of Christ. I hear that I'm being painted as cringy and wish-washy when I'm with you, but harsh and demanding when at a safe distance writing letters. Please don't force me to take a hard line when I'm present with you. Don't think that I'll hesitate a single minute to stand up to those who say that I'm an unprincipled opportunist. They'll have to eat their words. The world is unprincipled. It's dog eat dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight battles that way. Never have, never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or for manipulation, but they're for demolishing an entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God, tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. You stare and stare at the obvious, but you can't see the forest for the trees. If you're looking for a clear example of someone on Christ's side, why do you do so quickly cut me out? Believe me, I'm quite sure of my standing with Christ. You may think I overstate my authority that he gave me, but I'm not backing off. Every bit of my commitment is for the purpose of building you up after all, not tearing you down. What's this talk about me bullying you with my letters? His letters are brawny and potent, but in person he's a weakling and mumbles when he talks. Such talk won't survive scrutiny. What we write when away, we do when present. We're the exact same people, absent or present, in letters or in person. We're not understanding, putting ourselves in a league with those who boast that they're our superiors. We wouldn't dare do that. But in all this comparing and grading and competing, they quite miss the point. We aren't making outrageous claims here. We're sticking to the limits of what God has set for us. But there can be no question that those limits reach and include you. We're not moving into someone else's territory. We're already there with you, weren't we? We were the first ones to get there, the message of Christ, right? So how can there be any question of overstepping our bounds by writing or visiting you? We're not barging in on the rightful work of others, interfering with their ministries, demanding a place in the sun with them. What we're hoping for is that you live your lives and grow in faith. You'll play a part within our expanding work and we'll all still be within the limits set as we proclaim the message of Christ beyond Corinth but we have no intention of moving in on what others have done or are taking credit for. If you wanna claim credit, claim it for God. What you say about yourself means nothing in God's work. It's what God says about you that makes a difference. Thanks, Julie, for that reading. Um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So I was thinking about this chapter the whole week. Um, something came to my mind, and it was this question of, like, have you ever been 
misrepresented. If you have, you know that it feels painful. Someone believes or says something about you that isn't true. It hurts. It's been happening to Paul. As Julie read that from 1 Corinthians 10, and I decided this week to use the message because it captures with the language um, so vividly and beautifully. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, it's this picture that Paul is being misrepresented. It says in chapter 1, or yeah, in verse 1, that he's being painted as a cringing and wishy-washy person. That does not sound too cool. It also says that um, he makes reference to those who say, I'm unprincipled and opportunist. So it's this picture that Paul is being misrepresented. And he's being misrepresented by whom he'll later call in chapter 11 as super apostles. These people who are self-proclaimed super apostles. And they are questioning Paul's validity They're questioning his authority and why he can even participate in the Corinthian community. And so they're not just misrepresenting in order to undermine him or to question him, but they want to do so in order to elevate themselves, to make themselves look superior. And the metrics that they're using to compare themselves, they're doing purposefully and intentionally. And they're using those metrics to puff themselves up, make themselves look big, and make Paul look small. They are boasting and elevating in order to feel and be perceived as and look superior to Paul. And he goes back to this, as you heard, all the way through the chapter. He kind of peppers it through the chapter Like, this is what is being said about me. This is why these things are being said about me. If you look at verse 12, he says, We're not, understand, putting ourselves in a league with those who boast that there are superiors. We wouldn't dare do that. But in all this comparing and grading and competing, they quite miss the point. So with all their competing and boasting and feeling superior, they have missed the point. I think if we read that for a second, it's often what happens when boasting and feeling superior. We tend to miss the point. We miss the point in our own lives. We miss the point in the people that are in front of us when we're focusing on boasting and feeling superior. We also tend to miss the point. And so these people are disorienting the reality that the Corinthians live in in relation to Paul and in relation to the world around them. And so Paul wants to reorient them. And the reorienting happens so beautifully as Eugene Peterson translates this text in verses 3 to 6. Read that with me. The world is unprincipled. It's dog-eat-dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we don't live our fight. We don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demolishing 
that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. So there's this juxtaposition of how the world operates and how the people of Jesus operate. And I love this language that Peterson uses. It's so relevant. It feels this way at this moment. That there's a world that is living in a way that is unprincipled. It's dog eat dog. And there's a lot of anxiety and fight out there at the moment. Whatever you believe about different politics, this is maybe most prominently like displayed for us in what's going on in Portland. You've got mums and dads showing up. Like they are showing up in front of like federal agents. Like there's something amiss out there. It's unprincipled. It's dog eat dog. It's not fighting fair. Or you have a governor that is suing the mayor in Georgia. Like that's pretty unprincipled. Instead of a system working together, there's like this fighting that's happening. Again, it's like really clearly dog eat dog. And that's like at these grand levels, maybe not so grand if you're a mom showing up at a protest. But in the context of our family and friends and neighborhoods and even in our own state, it's all too easy to be at odds right now. Both because of the political climate and because of what is going on with the pandemic. And the world doesn't fight fair. And it's harrowing. And Paul in this moment is calling the Corinthians out of this game. He says, we don't live or fight our battles that way. We never have and we never will. He's got his own like instability and, and corruption and discord happening. And he's like, we don't do it that way. We never have and we never will. The tools of our trade, he says, aren't for marketing and manipulation, Right? We're not here to sell something really well or to spin it in such a way that people would come on side, would put others down. Like manipulation, like we're not here to lie or to twist the truth to benefit ourselves or our tribe or our group. And there's relief in that. Because we need other options. We need a way through and we need different tools than the ones that consistently we're barraged with. And Paul says here that the tools that we have are here to demolish all of this corruption and confusion and they are the God tools. And they're the ones that help us fit every loose thought and emotion into a structure of life that is shaped by Christ. They're tools that are ready at hand to clearly, to clear every obstruction and build lives of obedience into maturity. That's what these tools are for. 
And these God tools that we're given allow us to look a little bit different, to act differently. We're shaped by Christ so that we mature, like good wine or good cheese. There's a quality to us that stands out. The God quality to us. And so the obvious question that we have to ask ourselves when we think about this is, okay, well, if we want to age well, if we want to have these things form us into a Christ-shaped structure, what are those tools? What are the God tools that we would apply in a situation like we're living in today? In our families, and in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods, and in our politics? What are the tools that help us to age well? And I was having a conversation with Johnny this week, and I was like, where can we go to like, help people out with the God tools? I was like, we could go to the Beatitudes, we could go to the one another's. Like, you last week just re- um, referenced Psalm 112. Like, it's like all these God tools that we can collect when we look into this text. And um, Johnny's like, well, there's, there's lots that Paul's already laid out for us. It's like he's kind of giving us all of them in his letter. And I was like, chew that. Chew that, Johnny. And he's doing this. Paul is laying out these God tools because of his care and his concern and his love for the Corinthian church. And so I looked back. I looked back over the last nine chapters to see what I could attune to and what was there. And I'd encourage you to do the same. You'll probably find some that I'm not going to highlight today. But I want to show you the ones that I've found. And I'm just going to highlight or name one from each chapter that we've been through in the book of Corinthians. And in a minute, I'm going to just put them up on the screen. And what I want you to do when you see them on the screen is I want you to just pay attention to them. In light of your week, in light of what's been happening in your life this week, in terms of your everyday life with your family or with your friends, with your workplace or your neighborhood, or even as you just watch the news. I want you to look at this list and I want you to see if there is something that sticks out to you. I want you to look at this list and see if there's something on here that you're hungry for. That you know that you need. Or that you need to give. So I'm just going to hold a moment of silence as you look at this list that's up on the screen. And attune to it in light of your week.
Do any of these stand out to you? Is there one that you know you need? Is there one that you know you need to give? Maybe it was comfort that stood out to you. Maybe you need comfort. Maybe forgiveness. Maybe permission to admit your own fragility and weakness and not have to live in the world as proving yourself, needing to show that you succeed or that you have to avoid failure. A God tool is that you would be able to admit your own weakness and fragility. What a gift. Straight up gift. Maybe it's faith, which is a transfer of trust to Jesus. Where do you need to embody that transference of trust over to Jesus? Maybe there's some reconciling work that you know you need to do or an open-heartedness that you know you can show up to in a specific space in your life. Maybe it's repentance. And if you go back to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, you'll see when Paul talks about repentance here, he talks about godly sorrow which produces readiness to see justice done. So repentance is just not some trite, I'm sorry. Repentance is actually actions of restoration and repair and amends. And maybe that's what stood out to you. Maybe you know that you need to do the work of tending. Worrying less about outcomes and focusing on tending work that is marked by steadiness and consistency. Not buying into like the mechanical notion that input equals output. But instead, sometimes you don't know what the tending is going to produce or the outcome of that tending. What do you need? What do you need to give? These are some of the God tools. And we're empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, so we're not alone. God is in this with us, and we're in it with each other as we do these practices, take up these tools and enact them in the world around us. We do this with the empowerment of the Spirit, and we do it alongside each other with those deep, deep ties that we have to one another. So we're not in this alone. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't abandon these tools for the ones that you see around you. No matter how convincing people are, to get you to use other kinds of tools like pride and judgment and superiority and boasting and placing people outside of your circle. No matter how convincing they are to tell you that those are the tools that you use, don't abandon the tools that you have in Christ. And then he says the same to us, don't give up using these tools. Don't give up using these tools in a world that is harsh and demanding. And the reason that we use the tools that we're given is not so that we look good or that we prove ourselves as superior in the world around us, which is sometimes 
the ways that we end up picking up those tools, that's not the point. The world has enough of that, right? There's enough of that out there. He tells us why. Why we would do these. Verses 15 to 18. We're not barging in on the rightful work of others, interfering with their ministries, demanding a place in the sun with them. What we're hoping for is that as our, your lives grow in faith, you'll play a part with our expanding work. So the hope there is that as our lives grow in trust, as we consist as in faith, as we consistently transfer our trust and our life is shaped by Christ, we all play a part in this work. Getting our God tools out so that we inspire other people into the God life. And that's why this thing that we do isn't only about Sunday morning. Like it might be the smallest portion of what this thing we call faith is about. We can't just be focused on this moment or only show up and attune to who God is and who we are in relation to each other in this moment. Because it's your everyday lives where these tools mean the most and these tools matter the most. It is in the relationship you have with your family or at your workplace or in your neighborhoods. That's where these really matter. Especially now in this moment that we're living in the midst of a pandemic and this political um, tension. These, these tools really matter in the context of your everyday life. At the end of this passage, Paul quotes from Jeremiah chapter 9. He says, let no one boast, though let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he's quoting there from a passage, like I said, Jeremiah chapter 9. And in this section of Jeremiah, the, the section says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But he says what it is that we are to boast in. Let the ones who boast, boast about this. That they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord. Who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Monsieur, our God tools tell a story. And that story is that we understand and we know God. The one who exercises kindness and justice and rightness on the earth. And in those things our God delights. And the crazy thing is that when we press into these things, these tools, these practices that we are given through the Spirit by Christ we come to understand God more. So it's not just about what we give when we do these things, though it is about that. It's also about what we begin to understand. It's not just about the story that we are telling when we use these tools, but it is then about the story that we begin to understand and know for ourselves. 
that it doesn't have to be about comparing and grading and competing. That these practices or tools, they tear down the barriers that are erected against the truth of God, the one who exercises kindness and justice and rightness on the earth. And the hope is that our faith, our transfer of trust, draws us into participation of this kind of work. And it begins to be disruptive in our own hearts and minds and in the lives of those we encounter. It's disruptive in a world that doesn't fight fair. And it's reorienting. And so my questions for you this morning, Monsieur, are where do you need disrupting? Where do you need reorienting? Where have you bought in to tools that are being placed upon you in this moment that we live in? Where pride and superiority and contempt and disgust for the other, as is so prevalently pointed at us, those are the tools that you're beginning to take up. Where do you need reorienting and disrupting? And then where can you reorient and disrupt? Where can you pull out a God tool and have compassion in the midst of suffering, patient endurance, or forgiveness, or repentance, or tending? Where can you disrupt and reorient? We look for the God tools because it is what we, what you need in the world in order to understand who God is. But it's also what the world needs to be given. And there's no better practice that we do than communion that represents this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And he lifted up the cup and he instituted a new way of being, new rhythms, new practices, ones that are marked by kindness and justice and rightness. And like I said, he did it on the night that he was betrayed. So if you have your elements, you can take communion with me. This is a picture of forgiveness and love in the face of hatred and violence and fear. Monsieur, we have a life that is animated by the Spirit and shapes us into Christ-likeness. We don't do the things that are this invitation into kind of dog-eat-dog, dog, but we have different tools, different ways, different rhythms that we live by. And they help us to understand who God is. And they help us to extend who God is. Let's pray. Thanks for these tools. Lord, we need them. We need them especially in a moment where our world is not fighting fair. Where the tools that are easy to pick up are the ones that are full of hatred and, and even just like small acts of violence where we don't create space for other people. Or we don't 
give people the benefit of the doubt or we don't attune to them. Lord, we are being schooled right now um, in a different philosophy or a different cultural narrative and we need to be reoriented back to who you are so that we can understand who you are. And in understanding who you are, we can extend. And so Jesus, as your people and as your community, would you orient us to the tools that help us do that? And would you help us to be a people that use those tools in our workplaces, in our lives, with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors, within our neighborhoods, in the city? So that the thing that we declare declares your kindness and your justice and your rightness on the earth because we know that's what you delight in. So help us. Help us to be the reorienting, disruptive people so that we can join the work that you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll continue um, worshipping as we sing. And if you have something you want to have us pray for, please um, write it in the comments or send us an email. Um, We're with you.